At bestvolleyballvideos.com, we have over 150 hours of training videos developed specifically for the youth and high school age volleyball player. Please go to bestvolleyballvideos.com. Hello, everybody. As a lot of coaches start to prepare for their upcoming high school seasons and the club coaches who just finished their seasons are starting to think about next year, um, I wanted to do a podcast about just trends and uh, what-if scenarios that uh, allow coaches to think a little bit outside the box and maybe not follow the herd in a traditional sense. There's, there's a tendency for coaches to... Uh, see the success of other teams and other programs and have a tendency just to copy what they do as opposed to asking maybe some hard questions about why they're doing what they're doing. And so today I want to give you 10 uh, situations or scenarios or issues uh, to look at to see what if, uh, and again, what if your team ran this or what if your team tried this, uh, just to get you to think. And um, it doesn't mean that this is the right thing for your team or the right thing for your program or the right thing for your club or your school. But I think it allows, uh, as a coach, it allows you to ask yourself some hard questions. And it's always good to look at a problem and come at it maybe from more than one direction. And so, um, you know, we're going to go today. Today is going to be <laughs> a what-if podcast. And what if you did certain things and looked at certain situations maybe a little bit differently and just ask yourself some questions. It doesn't mean they'll work or they won't work, but I think that's one of the things. I mean, I remember back in, way back in 1984 when the USA men won the Olympic gold medal in Los Angeles, there was a lot of jump serving going on. And because, you know, I, I've said before in podcasts that there's a tendency in volleyball for women's volleyball to to copy and to integrate things in from the men's game once the men have been successful with it. You've seen that with back row attack. Uh, you've seen it with some other areas. But I remember, you know, in, in after 84, there was a lot of jump serving at the 84 Olympic Games on the men's side. There really wasn't any on the women's side. But <clears throat> the next year, the next fall, and then from there on for a year or two, uh, you saw a lot of jump serving, jump spin serving in women's college volleyball. And it didn't last very long because at, at that point in time in, in the evolution of the game, there weren't that many female college athletes who were hitting the ball hard enough from basically it's just a, it's a, it's a spike from the end line is what a jump serve is. There weren't enough athletes at that point in time hitting the ball hard enough to really uh, create that many passing issues. So, you know, after a year or two, you saw less and less and, uh, now you, you don't see a lot of females jump serving. I mean, you see a few who are just are the big bombers, but you know, primarily the jump float serve is the, is the, is the, uh, number one serve in the women's game. But what you saw in, in the back clear back in the, uh, uh, almost 40 years ago was that, you know, there was a time when a lot of the girls coaches, uh, women's coaches, uh, threw up the jump serve to see if it was going to work. And so, you know, this podcast is to give you a chance to think about some of these things. It doesn't mean that you're going to use them, but, you know, it's going to be a what-if day, and there's 10 issues uh, I want to talk to you about what-if with. And, um, you know, it's just thinking outside the box. It's allowing yourself to look at things maybe in a little bit different way and to think about, you know, does this some – every one of you with your teams and your programs, you have different needs and you have different strengths and you have different weaknesses. And so you look at things in a different manner because each of you have personnel that's a little bit different. You all don't have the same. You all don't have, you know, two big 
you know, studly middles who can, you know, touch over 10 feet and hit the ball quick. And you don't have two big left side hitters. You all have different needs and, and personnel. So um, just some things to think about. So the first, the first thing is uh, your, my what if scenario is what if you ran a four passer system and, you know, you took your three best slash passer attackers and your Libro and those four people passed all the balls on your team. Now, generally right now in volleyball, you, you, without, without the concept of the DS, you have a Libro. A lot of times you'll have two, your two left sides, your two outside hitters pass. A lot of times the right side player doesn't pass. It's the opposite. That's kind of the standard uh, homogenized uh, volleyball system in, in volleyball right now. The two left sides pass and your Libro passes. But uh, what if you put three passers on the court plus your Libro, uh, your three best passer hitters, and that changes, that changes your passing formations. It changes the tempo of your offense. And it probably gives you better serve-receive, uh, gives you more flexibility in serve-receive. And it restricts your opponents from tactically coming after you with short serve or maybe some of their serving options because you have the now, you have the flexibility to have an extra passer. And, you know, the question is, and one of the things we've talked about in the past is the, the probability of a first ball kill or over time, what's going to get you one or two extra points? And the question is, does a player that can pass and probably dig at a high level and also attack, do, do those players provide more value than just a really strong block attack person who maybe doesn't have the same kind of ball control skills? And so, you know, we've, we've had a couple teams in the past when I was coaching that we went with just, you know, the three best hitter passers. Uh, there was flexibility in the lineup. Um, and then the Libro, but we had great ball control because you could you, know, you could have your three passers passing, but that means you can move up a left side passer or you can move up a right side passer closer to the net, take that passer away for, as a serving target, you know, get into a fast tempo system to the antenna a lot better than if you've just got your, your two lefts back passing all the time. But there's more flexibility that way. And the one thing to look at is you generally, I know people look at just blocking matchups and things like that, but if you're a high school coach or even if you're a club coach, you know, blocking is going to be fairly far down on the list in your team being successful. I mean, pass and serve and attack are going to be really, really important. You know, the ability to serve to good locations, the ability to pass at a good level, not make mistakes, uh, the ability to hit the ball consistently. So you know, that's my question to you as a coach is, you know, does a passer – a good strong passer who's a who's a good hitter do three of those do they trump a two two outside hitters who pass but then maybe you've got a right side kid who's you know a physical kid but doesn't handle the ball very well you know and so that's one of the things to look at because if you have consistently four passers on the court at all times you have a lot more flexibility in your rotations so uh, that's the first what if I'd like you to look at. You know, just you know, if you if you have four passers all the time and you can sit down and play with your rotations on it. But if you have four passers, you know, you can push somebody up on the left, you can push somebody up on the right, you can drop somebody back and push somebody up. You have flexibility. You can move people around because. And again, if you get against a really really tough serving team, uh, maybe you can put four back in a cup. But four passers on the court at all times, you know, there's a lot of value in that because it makes you a team that's really difficult to take out a system as far as side out goes. So that's one of the things to think about. So that's my first what if. So my second what if is, you know, what if your best outside hitter, which the person that might normally be your L1, what if you put that person opposite your setter? And 
and I don't mean as an opposite in relationship to what you see in, in men's volleyball or sometimes in women's volleyball, uh, but I'm talking about a person who just goes opposite the setter. But when they go opposite the setter, they can play three rotations in the left on the left. They can still pass, but in the back row, they can play three rotations in right back. And, you know, the setter's front row the whole time if you're in a 5-1. And the reason that I bring this up is because generally if you've got a real strong back row attacker who's coming out of the middle of the back position as a, as a strong, you know, a strong left side back row attacker, uh, it's pretty easy to bunch block or triple block that, that hitter. And so teams tactically will know that when you get in trouble, if your strongest hitter is in middle back, that they can bunch and you have three blockers up. If you've got your strongest hitter opposite the setter and playing in right back, then and you've got you know the setter in the front row, you've got a left side hitter out there, it's, it's much, much more difficult to get three blockers up on a, on a hitter who's hitting out of right back. And it, you know, it gives you better matchup options. You know, we did this um, a couple of years ago. Uh, it was in the COVID season. We had a shortened season, but we put our best attacker in the opposite position. She still passed. She still hit all over the place in back row, but she hit a lot of balls in right back. You know, we didn't see her get triple blocked. Uh, and in the front row, we kept her on the left side. And so because you're op- being opposite the setter means that you n- you can stay in the right back position as a defender, but we used her as a point-scoring back row attacker. So that's another thing to look at is, is, is if you have one big physical hitter on your team, you know, does that hitter, does it benefit your team? And again, I'm always... I'm always talking to you guys about, you know, the ability over the course of, you know, a couple of dozen rotations. How can you get one or two more points? And so, you know, this podcast today is about asking yourself, will this allow me to get one or two more points? So uh, the number two what if is, you know, what if your best outside hitter is playing opposite the setter, hitting out a right back in the back row and can still go left side in the front row? Uh, that means you've got flexibility with other hitters, but this is maximizing point scoring for you as a as a program. And we did this when we had one hitter who was going to score a lot of points for us. It wasn't when we were going to have set distribution that was going to be you know pretty equal. It was when one hitter was going to get a lot of sets. I remember we went to a tournament. It was a two-day tournament. This hitter got over 200 swings, over 100 kills. And so one of the things that we looked at was how can we maximize our team success by putting that hitter in the best position because if she was coming out of middle back as a as a left side hitter in the back row an L1 you know she would have had three blockers up on her almost all the time so uh, that's that's the number two what if Uh, number three is what if you used your libro on matchup defense and you know I I did a, a short classroom session about this last year but one of the things that we talk about all the time is you know, for blocking, you want to put the, the blockers in the position where the ball is most likely to cross the net. And then on defense, you want to put the best digger and the most diggers in a position where the ball is most likely to go when it hits the floor. And so the, the thing that, that I think about in this is, you know, I go back to the Japanese women's team back, I think, in 2008 or 2012. and 2008, maybe, when they won the, the bronze medal. Um, and it was at London, and you know they had a really short setter. Her name was uh, Yoshi Takashita, and uh, you know she was five foot two. So it, it wasn't uncommon when she was in the front row for the Japanese libero to be playing right back because all the teams tried to hit over the top of her. So one of the things that y- that you could think about as a coach 
is your if you have a strong Libro, you know, does your Libro need to always be in left back? I mean, what if your Libro was, you know, what if you played a team that had a strong left side hitter who loved to hit sharp cross court from the right side? Uh, your opponent, your opponent had a right side, strong right side hitter who loved to hit cross court, just because she's left handed. And the rotations at your centers in the front row, would you be better off having your Libro play right back because you know the other team's going to set a lot of balls to that right side hitter? She's going to swing statistically and hit a lot of balls cross court. You know why? Why wouldn't you be in a better position to dig more balls if your best defender was in the position that was most likely to be hit at by that attacker? And again, this isn't every time, but one of the things that you do as coaches is you look at percentages and how do you play the percentages? And again, how do you get one or two more digs? How do you get one or two more swings? You know, and those are all the things that you look at. You know, the, another thing is, let's say you have a shorter setter and she's front row. Not a, not a really short setter, but let's say you have a shorter setter and she's front row. A lot of swings go at her or over her. Then that, that's maybe the time that your liberal plays middle back because, you know, you, let's say your middle blockers are, are decent size. So a lot of ball is going to be hit line or seam. So are you better off having your libro? Uh, play left back or play middle back if the ball is most likely to be hit line seam over the top of a smaller setter. And so one of the things that, that, you, that I would think about as a coach is how do you match your Libro up to be in the position where the ball is most likely to be attacked the greatest number of times? And again, this is, you have to think outside the box a little bit, but that's exactly what this podcast is about. And ask yourself, you know, if I move my Libro around, Will she get more digs? Will she have a chance to get more digs? And, you know, it's something obviously it's something you can work on in practice, but you're going to play against teams if they have strong right-side attackers, if somebody loves to hit cross-court from the right side a lot. You know, and let's say, you know, who's going to be playing right back when the setter's front row? I mean, do you have somebody better to put over there who digs the ball better than your Libro? So it might be one of the things that... Uh, for you to look at again that's that's the what if scenario and that's number three I mean can you use your Libro as a matchup defender versus just keeping your Libro in the same position all the time so <clears throat> number four if you run a 5-1 and you know in rotation one you know your opposite or your right side player is on the left side hitting left side and your L1 which is probably your strongest outside hitter is on the right side you know what statistically you know what are your What's your hitting percentage in rotation one uh, with your right side on the left and with your L1 on the right? What's your hitting percentage? What's your first ball kill percentage? You know, can teams, can teams attack you from a, a different point of view? Can they serve and, and have you struggle with your offense? Uh, is, is rotation one a good rotation for you? Because generally the L1 is on the right side. A lot of times the L1 will get set, but what if your team doesn't pass well? What if your team doesn't pass well in rotation one and you lose the ability to get the ball to your L1? So one of the things to think about is, and this is the fourth uh, what if, is what if you stack your L1 in rotation one? What if you move your L1 all the way over to the left side of the court, either back as a passer or, you know, you can move your L1 up and you can drop your right back as a passer if your right happens to pass for you. But now what you have on the left side is you have three players who are bunched. You have your left one, your L1 is over on the left, passing, or not passing, doesn't matter. Uh, and she's actually in right front, but she's on the left side of the court now. That means your right side player and your M2 are over there. So your, your M2 would be in middle front, and your right side is in left front. But it's clearly you're clearly going to have traffic issues over there in some capacity. But the question is, is it more important for you to have your best hitter on the left side of the court 
let's say you don't pass the ball that well, which means that no matter how badly the ball is passed, you can still get the ball to that person who has the best chance to get a first ball kill for you. Because if you pass poorly in rotation one and you're L1 and you're out of system badly, it's a good chance you're not going to get the ball to your L1. There's a good chance you're going to have to set, you know, if your L2 is coming out of the back row or your right side's on the left, but your right side's not a good left side hitter. Let's say your right side is a, a lefty, doesn't hit well on the left. You know, what are all the things that can go wrong in rotation one if you do not pass well? You know, so one of the things that you look at is what if you stack, what if you move your L1 over to play on the left side? It takes your Libra out of the middle of the court, but you have L2 and you have uh, Libro can pass most of the court. If L1 drops back, L1 can take, you know, a, th- a fourth of the court. But you've got now your best left side hitter on the left side of the court to hit. What is it? What do the other hitters have to do? Well, you're, the M2 might have to go behind, run some kind of slide. The right side might have to come to the middle of the court for some kind of, you know, second tempo or combination. And those are obviously concerns, I think, at some point. But are they outweighed by the fact that you're L1, your absolute best hitter? And a lot of times for a high school team or even a club team, you know, you don't have five hitters who are equally good. You know, you may have an L1 who just kills it. You may have an L2 that's okay. You may not be strong in the middle. You don't know what you have. But one of the things that you have, you know that your L1 generally is your best attacker. And so right now, if you, if you stack in rotation one, you'll have the ability, no matter how bad the ball is passed, to, for the ball to be set out to the left side. And that's the one thing that, as a coach, when we start talking about, you know, how do we, how do we manage, minimize our errors? How do we try to maximize our success? You know, if you can have your best attacker out on the left, you know, the greatest number of times, it's pretty, pretty easy to get a ball out there. And so that's one of the things I want, I want people to think about. That's my fourth what if, is what if you stacked in rotation one, and as you sit down as a coach, some of you coaches are probably already grabbing paper, and you're starting to write down rotations and look at it. And, and what it is, it means that over on the left side of the court, L1 is over there, M2 is over there, and R is over there. So you have to, once the ball is served, you have to make sure that your M2 can get behind and your, and your right side can come into the middle for, a, for what we call combination play. But the most important thing is it lets your L1 just slide out and hit on the left side. And so it, you don't have to be fancy, but you've probably just increased your chance for a first ball kill, which is really, really, really important uh, when we talk about winning. So uh, L1 on the left in rotation one. Uh, take a look and see how that looks for your team. Uh, number five, uh, what if you, you specifically use two Libros all the time? What if you had a Libro that was passing? And what if you had a Libro that was digging? And, you know, uh, if you had a Libro that was always in on serve-receive, and then the Libro, you, that Libro was out every time your team served and played defense and defended. Uh, because a lot of times you've got a Libro who can pass uh, passes really well. Maybe it's not a great defender, but it's a great passer. And sometimes you've got really athletic, dynamic kids who you know dig really well, but they're not great on service C because you know they're just they don't they don't handle the, the ball floating coming to them the same way they can react and make great athletic plays as a digger. But um, you know one of the things to look about is how do you how do you do that? And and I think the one thing you want to make sure is that if you if you do look at this, and you know we were in Japan years ago in Seitoku, which was the best high school team in Japan. I think you've heard me talk about Seitoku before on podcasts, you know, every single ball, they sub their Libros in and out, or didn't sub, but they exchanged their Libros. And so it allows, you know, it, and one of the things you want to make sure is that the Libro that serves is your best serving Libro. And, you know, but uh, you usually have a Libro that passes really well, and they normally don't 
pass equally well, and usually they don't dig equally well. Equally well, so it's one of the things to think about. That's number. That's number five. What if you use two libros and one's a receiving libro and one's a digging libro, and so that's one of the things to think about. Number six is um, you know it's 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 you rarely see this, but sometimes you'll have a tall athletic setter. Sometimes you'll be shorthanded on middles. And, you know, we ran this sitter, and one of the things that I'm talking about is let your, let your tall athletic setter play opposite your middle because you don't have two strong physical middles, but you have good outside hitting. So if you run a one-middle system, and a one-middle system means that your setter starts opposite your middle, so your setter, when she's in the front row, blocks middle and, uh, you know, sets to the right and the left in the back row. Uh, but what that means is that you're going to use four outside hitters. Let's say you've got four kids that can bang on the outside, have good ball control skills, uh, you know, hit the ball well. Let's say you don't have two middles. Let's say you only have one, but you've got a tall or a pretty tall or athletic setter. Then maybe the system that you're looking at is a system that uh, would be better suited with four outside hitters, kids that can bang away at the ball, kids that handle handle the ball well. And, you know, there, there's some components of that from the first thing we talked about using four passers. Uh, but, you know, that gives you a chance to uh, identify where the Libro on your team would play, who, who the Libro would go in for. But we've run this system before with a lot of success. We got all the way to a national finals championship uh, years ago with this. And for you guys, if you're interested in it, if you'll get on YouTube and you'll, you'll type in the 1988 women's gold medal Olympic match in Seoul, Korea, and Peru played against, uh, I think it was the Soviet Union at the time, they weren't Russia yet, but Peru ran a one-middle system. They had a big middle named Gabrielle Perez del Solar, I believe her name was. She was about a 6'4", 6'5", middle, and actually in those days there was no Libra, so she passed and played back row, hit out of the back row, but they also had about a 5'8", or 5'9", setter, and if you watch the system, uh, the setter blocked middle, and you know they they ran a one middle system, and it, it's a system that again and again I, I talked at the beginning of this podcast about every one of you have different personnel issues, uh, not good or bad issues, but you have issues. You may have an abundance of tall kids who can't handle the ball, or you may have an abundance of kids who handle the ball pretty well, but they're not very big. Uh, so you know you may have a tall setter who's you know going off to college, and you know she's. She maybe was a hitter, but she's become a setter, and she's a pretty good athlete, and she, you know, she moves well. And, but one of the things to look at is, you know, what if your setter played opposite your middle? And it's primarily a, a second-tempo offense. There's not a lot of quick sets. I mean, you've got three rotations with a middle in the front row, and you've got three rotations with no middle. And from there, you have, you know, you, you'll have to make adjustments. But, um, you know, this is a system that works. I mean, this last year, I, I know that uh, I'm not in, in Illinois anymore, but I know the Sports Performance 16s team the entire year ran uh, a one-middle system. And, you know, they were, they were one of the better 16 teams in the country and, you know, did really, really well, won the JV World Challenge, uh, had a nice athletic setter who played middle. She's about six foot tall, you know, an elite Division One prospect, uh, athletic enough to block middle, set tempo fast to the pins, you know, used the back row attack a lot. Uh, but they, she had one middle, and when that one middle was front row, they used the middle a lot. But she only had one physical middle. And so there's a lot of coaches probably listening to this right now who saying, I don't have a lot of middles either. And so that's one of the things maybe you look at. So uh, number six is what if you put your setter opposite your middle and you ran it in the one middle system? So that's one of the things to look at. So number seven is 
something that's you know it's pretty intriguing to me um but it, it, one of the things to think about is if, if you run a, a pure six two and let's say your your setters come out for hitters uh you have two good smaller setters uh you know generally you know people the setters go in you know for a right side they sub in for each other but what if you subbed your setters for your middles and you know what does that do well, it means that a couple things. If you're, if the setters go in for the middles, that means a middle goes in and a setter comes out. And it also means that as a setter now, you are going to work with the same middle for three rotations. So one of the downsides of the 6-2 that people talk about in the 6-2 is it's difficult to hit off two different setters. But if you have the setter and the middle sub for each other, then each middle has their own setter. And so, you know, the, the you, three rotations, you know, setter goes in, middle goes in, you get the same middle the whole time. And there's, there's some really strong benefits from this. First of all, it means that the, a middle doesn't ever have to serve, and a middle doesn't have to play back row. So there's not that weak spot where you see this in club volleyball, you see it at the Olympic level, you see it everywhere, where the middles have to serve and go play defense, and it, you know, right away teams will tip to them, hit at them, and generally it's almost automatic that you know, they don't, they just, they don't, they're not strong in defense. So if you sub your setters and middles for each other, then it allows, it allows you know, the, the same setter to have the same middle and also takes away that idea that the middles have to serve or play any back row. So that's a positive. Another thing it does is... Your libro can play for, let's say your libro goes in and plays for uh, the two players that play on the right side. Let's say you've got some big physical kids that can hit the ball hard, um, don't handle the ball that well. Well, your libro might go in for those two. Or let's say you have you know, two, two on the left, which that's probably going to be unlikely. But let's say you have some really big physical kids on the left. They don't pass well, but they can really hit the ball well. So you also have those options. So, you know, I think Nebraska ran this system years and years ago. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's not common. And the downside to this is if you run out of subs. If you run out of subs, uh, what are you going to do if you run out of subs and you, you have to you bring, you know, your middle can't come back in. Does your setter go to the front row and have to play middle? And that's the one thing to look at. But more importantly, I mean, think about the positives of this system where uh, if I'm a middle, I get the same setter for three rotations. That means all season long, each one of your middles only works with one of the setters. So timing ought to be much better than it is when they have to work with two. Second of all, you ought to be much stronger if you don't have a middle serving and playing back row defense. And so I think there's a lot of positives to this. And I don't know if you've thought about this. I don't know if you've done that. But, you know, the this modified 6-2 is, you know, what if your setters and middles subbed in for each other and then your Libro could sub in for other people. So uh, that's, you know, that's one of the things to look at. So that's number seven, okay? Um, number eight is... I want to talk about mastering the short serve and, you know, not just a short serve, but like for your team to master the short serve, because the, the concept of a short serve, people a lot of times will use a short serve, short serve to try to break up rhythm. But I want to think about how you use the short serve in a tactical sense. And there's two or three different things to look at specifically on when the short serve could be really, really valuable. And, you know, there's, if you know short serving, or if you know zones, the, the, the three zones across the front row from, from right front to left front, you know, as you go around the wheel, you know, uh, 
zone two is right front, zone three is middle front, and zone four is left front. So, but one of the things that if your team is actually if your team is actually good at short serving, and I'm talking about short serving, you know, maybe some opponents, you know, in certain rotations, you short serve every time in that rotations for a number of reasons. And and one of the one of the things to look at is if let's say you're playing a team and they love to run slide. And they they've got a big they've got a big hitter in the front row, and they love to run slides. So, you know, if you can short serve to zone two, then what that means is that somebody's got to come up. And I mean short serve by that I mean you're passing inside the ten foot line. You're consistently you're bringing the passer up to have to pass inside the ten foot line. If you can short serve to zone two behind the setter, then what you've done is you've basically shut down the slide, or you've you've delayed the ability to run the slide because that that runway over there for this for the slide hitter to get to the antenna is gone because you've got a passer in there there now passing the short serve. So the one thing that the short serve does is it's it's a tactical application to take away something that the other team likes to do. And again, in certain rotations, teams love to run certain patterns or certain sets. And again, if you get somebody who loves to go behind the setter, hit the slide in a certain rotation, and you can short serve to zone two, then you've put yourself in a great situation. So uh, that's one area right there. Another one is if you can serve, um, you know, in in rotation one, uh, the other team's L1 is in, in right side. Let's say you can short serve and you bring that L1 up on the right side to pass a short ball, then now you've taken her out of her uh, attack pattern. And so one of the things it allows you to do is it allows you to kind of get on top of that that L1 who's in rotation one because a lot of times in rotation one teams will set their L1 uh, on the right side and so if you know that that's a tendency for the team that you're playing against and you short serve to zone two and that L1 has to come up and pass short then it changes the rhythm of the attack for that hitter so that's another area that you can look at on how you can attack an, an opponent by serving to zone two in if your opponent in rotation two, when setters in middle back, is bunched up near the net, where you've got they, the right side has come up and the M, uh, M2 is right there, and you know the setters come up close, if you short serve to zone three, then you're putting the ball right in that mix of players. And so you've taken away the ability for that middle to get out and run something because generally the right side will clear out and go right side. The M2 comes back towards the middle. But if in rotation two, when the other team's in rotation two, if you can short serve to zone three, where that bunch of where that group of three is normally, you know, then you slow or delay all the patterns that come out of that. So that and then that gives you the chance to block other areas if they're not going to be able to hit the sets that they like to hit. So that's that's when zone, the short serve to zone three looks really good. And then you know, short serve to zone four is if you're getting beat up by an outside hitter who who pass and hits gets a long approach is just beating you up in that sense you know if you can short serve to zone four and you can bring that left side hitter up to have to take that ball and then get her back where she has to take a longer approach then what you've done is you've you what you're doing is you're short circuiting the rhythm and the tempo of the other team and again as we've talked about so many times it's not it's it's going to score you a point every single time but if out of 10 serves, it gets you one or two extra points that you hadn't gotten before, you know, that might be the difference between 25-23 uh, in the set or 23-25. And so that's one of the things that you'll look at is you'll look at the ability over time to create one or two situations that are advantageous for you that will allow you to score more points. So uh, I think that's, the, that's one of the key things. And, 
And the short serve is great for forcing the opposing team to adjust tactics, to do things that they're not used to doing, do things they're not comfortable with, you know, just that alone. And, and then now you're talking about, you know, the frustration of maybe not being as successful, not being in the rhythm that they want to be in. And what that does is it just changes. It may change the mood of the team. It may change how they look at things. Uh, but that's one of the things to think about is how you can take the the concept of short serving and make it a strong tactic for your team. So uh, that's number eight. Number nine is um, is it my question? Is it time for women's volleyball to go back to combination plays? And if you know what combination plays are, uh, you know the, you you don't see many nowadays. And you know I'm going to define a combination play as you know having a a first and a second tempo set, <clears throat> excuse me, two two sets in, in close proximity to each other, generally one's a first tempo or a quick set, and then one's a lower set right next to it. And you're trying to force blockers to communicate and, and, and change, a lot of times you'll change blockers, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, versus attack responsibilities. You're trying to get the blockers to have to communicate and get mixed up in their responsibility for who takes what attacker. And, and I'll get into this more in a little bit. A, a, a sample of this is uh, the right side, or we, what we call the X play. And if you've been around volleyball for very long, you know, the, the X play is the three-hitter rotation. You've got three hitters in the front row. You have the middle that comes in for the front quick. And then you have the right side player that comes around just right behind the middle and hits that ball just on the left shoulder of the, the middle, which they call the X play, or, or you call it a crossing play. And the reason that that's – that the X play, it, you know, is – I think the Japanese and the Asians started running the X play back in the 70s, 1970s. But for a long time, the combination plays were extremely popular. And they're very, very, very successful when teams ran in the right way. And, uh, you know, that, so that right side cross coming around is one sample. Another example of a crossing play is when the left side hitter will come inside of the 31 or the B quick set and hit a ball in the middle of the court. And that's where the, you know, the, the quick hitter goes to zone three. So that's that little, we call it the B quick, but you might call it a 31. You might call it a shoot set. That, that quick hitter is about eight or 10 feet away from the setter. But the left side will come in and hit a ball in the middle of the court. And the reason those two plays work is because blockers who are blocking those sets, the blockers have to communicate and they have to change attacking responsibilities. So if you look at the, the right side play, the right side play, the crossing play, is the, if, and now the, the opposing team's left side who is responsible for blocking the, uh, the right side, as the right side hitter comes around, the opposing team's left front blocker has to move over and communicate that the right side hitter is coming around behind the quick attack. And what happens is, in theory, the left side blocker now should move all the way over and take the quick attack hit, hitter because the middle blocker now has to stay and move over and take the right side player that's coming around because the right side player is coming around now, once the right side player crosses behind the middle, then the right side player is now the middle hitter of the three hitters. The middle hitter, the quick hitter, has now become the hitter that's the furthest to the left. So the left side blocker has to take that quick hitter. The right side hitter coming around now is in the middle of the court, 
the middle the middle blocker has to wait and take that and then the right side blocker who also has the left side attacker out there has to be ready to come in and help on that combination play with the right side player coming around and so the the one thing that you know that you see a lot in women's volleyball is is to be successful with combinations you have to communicate at a really high level and you have to be able to change hitters. I mean, so a blocker has to communicate, has to make a move, has to talk a lot about what's going on with the patterns in front of them. So there's got to be a lot of communication. And, you know, generally in high school and even at the club level, the blockers aren't that sophisticated. You don't see that. So, you know, we don't see a lot of combinations, but one of the reasons, if you want to see great combination volleyball, get on YouTube again and, 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 um, you know, type in the Thailand women's volleyball team. And, you know, especially if you type, type in, uh, there's a setter. Her last name is Nutsara, N-O-O-T-S-A-R-A. Her, her first name is Tom Com, but it's Nutsara. If you look at her highlights, you'll see a lot of combination plays. It's where hitters are just flying all over the court. And, you know, they're successful at the highest level against the best players. But one of the things that happened to combination volleyball years and years ago was, was the advent of, of, swing or bunch or read blocking and once the blockers started to move towards the middle of the court and this was this was and this came in men's volleyball first but now it's it's the case in women's volleyball once the blockers moved to the middle of the court and started in the middle of the court then for hitters to try to come inside and hit combination plays they were really they were really coming right into the strength of the block and so the tactics started when swing blocking became popular and they hit and the blockers bunched in the middle of the court. Swing blocking, you know, became really popular. But also now the goal of the offense was to push the ball with tempo all the way to the pins, the left side and right side, and make the blockers chase. And so instead of uh, an outside to inside combinations, what you saw was these inside to outside and trying to get the blockers. Now men, men still run... Uh, combinations, a lot of combinations, but their combinations are front row, back row combinations. So the men will bring a quick hitter right in front of the setter, and then they'll bring a back row attacker right off the left side. They call it the big set. They'll bring a back row attacker right off the left side. And the blockers have to make decisions if they're going to take the f- quick attack or they're going to wait and take the, the, the BIC, which is almost a quick attack. And so you see this a lot in men's volleyball. You don't see it as much in women's volleyball. And so, and again, my question is, because women's volleyball now, almost nobody in women's volleyball even sees combination plays anymore. Nobody runs combination plays. Nobody gets to practice against combination plays. You know, are there instances now where we should be looking to bring combinations back? Because are there, are there instances where maybe a team will move a blocker all the way out to the pin? You see this in women's volleyball a lot. At the international level, the right side blocker moves out to the pin and starts out to the pin, so you don't have all the blockers bunched in. Are there, are there areas now where combinations could be successful? So it's one of the things that I think, you know, and again, it's one of the things that coaches should look at because, again, at your level, I don't know the sophistication of the blocking. I don't know how well blockers communicate. I don't know how if they're capable of, of sophisticated, you know, tactics. But if they're not, then maybe, you know, maybe now is the time for teams to look at combination plays. You know, what, what if we look at more combinations? And so that's one of the things to think about. And again, you know, it's just the, I talked to you about blocking the X play where the left side's got to come over, take the quick, got to communicate with the middle blocker to stay down and take the right side coming around. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts in a short period of time, a lot of stuff to be uh, communicated. And again, with teams not practicing that much, especially blocking tactics, you know, now may be a good time for teams to look at combination plays. I mean, again, and, I, and I've said this again, and I, I know it's getting redundant, but 
what's going to get your team one or two more points? What's going to allow you to be a little bit more successful, a higher percentage of first ball kill? I mean, what's going to allow you to do that? And, uh, you know, maybe mixing up your offense and combination plays, maybe that's one of the things to look at. So um, I think that's important. And uh, finally, the last one is <clears throat> I want to talk about utilizing, you know, a lot of you have teams that hit out of the back row. And I want to talk to you about utilizing five back row attack zones. And, um, you know, generally most teams, uh, when they attack back row, they attack one or two zones. A lot of teams attack the back row out of the middle of the court. You know, they call it the pipe or the bick or, you know, the bick is really a fast back row set. I think the a lot of stuff that happens in girls volleyball is more of a pipe set, which comes down the middle of the court. Uh, and then teams that hit on the in the right back with an opposite, you know, that's that's your second zone over there, that right back position. You know, a few teams will hit um, you know, a third back row position. They'll hit that gap set between the middle back and the right back. There's a gap set there. And, uh, you know, and even fewer teams in will use a fourth back row zone. They'll hit the gap set on the left side of the pipe, which is, you know, if you think about the left side line in the middle of the court, there's a gap, that gap that's kind of in between there. Um, you know, that's kind of the fourth zone. So if you look at, I think most coaches would tell you that, that this, Probably the most sophisticated would tell you they have four back row zones. They have the the left gap, which is about six, seven feet in from the sideline. It's probably about three or four feet wide. They have the middle gap, which comes right behind the quick attack hitter, which is where your pipe gets hit. There's the gap on the right side of the pipe zone, uh, which is inside from your your right back attack position. And then there's the right back position over where uh, I think maybe some people call it the D ball, but that's where, that's where the opposite hits out of the back row a lot. And then if you think about when do you use these zones and I'm going to get to the fifth zone in a minute, but generally these four zones are used when you look at what the front row attackers are doing. Now I just talked to you about uh, right side combination. Let's say your team is running the X play. Okay. If you're running the X play, you have a three hitter offense, but you're running a quick attack and you're running the right side hitter around to hit on the other side of the quick attack, you're not going to be running the pipe. There's, you're not going to be having a back row hitter come flying out of the middle of the court to hit right on top of those two hitters who are right in front of you because somebody's going to get hurt, but also it's going to screw up the timing. So if you have something like like that, then what you do is you'll have your, your pipe hitter will move to the right and either go all the way outside and hit that right back position, or they could hit the gap between the pipe and the right side. So, you know, that's that's one of the things to look at. And another thing that you'll look at, and there's another time that the gap is important, is let's say setter's front row and you run the slide. You want to run the slide with your middle hitter. You go all the way to the pin with your, your one-legged attack from your middle. Well, your right back hitter is not going to hit on top of your quick attack hitter. You're not going to hit on top of the slide. So that's when that right back will come in and either hit that gap set or maybe come all the way around and hit a pipe set. So your back row attack zones have to be flexible and they have to move around based on what the front row, what the front row hitters are doing. You don't want to have a, a back row attack on top of a front row attack. You know, you want to have, there has to be some difference there. So uh, that's why that's in, in, at the highest level, you've seen you know, you've seen a lot of, you know, these gap back row sets because 
uh, you know, if if I'm if you can picture this, if I'm in the front row with my setter, if my setter's front row, and let's say my left side hitter is hitting at the left pin, and my right side and my middle is hitting at the right side pin, then what I have now is I have a front row setter in the middle of the court. I have a slide hitter, and I have a, a left side hitter at the left side pin. What am I going to do with my two back row attackers? You know, well then my right back attacker, if she's if she's a back row hitter, is going to have to come to that gap set probably. But I also might take my middle back hitter and hit that other gap set on the other side of the pipe because I can go, now I have a left side attacker. I have a, my middle back hitter is in the gap on the left side of the pipe hitter. And my right back hitter is in the inside gap inside the slide hitter. And then I've got the slide all the way on the pin. Then I've got the setter in the middle of the court. So now I have five attack zones uh, to go against three blockers. I have left side hitting. I have slide hitter hitting on the right side. I have my setter in the front row who could tip, and I have two back row attackers. So now I've got five points of attack, so what I want to do is I want to spread those points of attack out, and I want to make sure that they hit in positions where it's harder for the block to bunch and stay and block more than one hitter at the same time where I want to try to create movement. So, And this brings me to the fifth attack zone. And you don't see it very often, but you can see it if you watch the Thailand team play. And I saw this with Korea a few years ago. Uh, teams that run combinations, what happened was when teams run combinations and they bring their left side hitter in for a combination, let's say your team is running a, a, a B or that 31 quick set, which is about you know 8 to 10 feet away in front of the setter, and your the left side hitter comes in to hit that combination play inside, you know, there's an area of the court that's wide open right now, and that's the far left back row zone. And so one of the things that you'll see you'll see the, with the Thailand team and also the Korean team is they took their pipe hitter, and she went all the way to the almost down the sideline uh, to hit out of the back row because now if you can picture it, you've got your the team has a, a, a quick hitter in zone three, the 31 of the B. They brought their left side hitter in to hit. So now the blockers, even if the blockers are bunched in the middle of the court, they've got that quick attack hitter in zone three. They've got the left side hitter that's come in to block to hit out of the middle of the court. And they've also got a right side hitter. So now they've got those hitters in the middle of the court that they have to contend with. And so what what you saw with the Thailand team and also with the Korean team who had, you know, good outside hitting is they would go to the far left of the court and attack back row down the line because the blockers had all bunched in the middle of the court to try to stop the combination plays that had come to the middle. And that's another thing about when you run combinations and you bring hitters into the middle, you may be bringing hitters into that bunch block, but also you have back row hitters that can get wide and can flare and can hit outside. And so this fifth back row zone, which you almost never see anybody use, because there's normally a left side hitter out there, this fifth fifth back row zone is that far left side, the last about the last six feet of the court. So on the left side, and if you take if you take five zones, they're all going to be six feet wide because the court is about thirty feet wide. So the the far left zone would be you know about six feet from the left sideline coming in, and you've got the gap set, which is another six feet. Then you've got the, the middle area, which is the pi- your pipe set. And then on the right side of that middle area, you've got that other gap set, which is about six feet. And then the last six feet going to the right sideline is, you know, is, is the last attack, back row attack zone, which your you know, right back hitter hits out of a lot. So what you have now is you have five zones potentially to hit out of, and you almost never see anybody 
hit out of the left back zone because you know you you generally don't see left side hitters coming in for combination plays but again that's what if if you choose to go with combinations and you choose to start bringing your right side hitter around and your left side hitter inside uh, to hit combinations to create problems with the block then your back row attack is going to be open at the pins and so you know that's it's another thing to look at and it's you know it's just you know, these are all things today that we've talked about that allow you as a, as a coach to say, how can we be a little bit different? And also generally when you do the, a lot of this stuff, you're doing stuff that nobody sees regularly. Nobody practices it. Nobody practices it in their own gym. So it may give you some advantages just from that point of view. But the biggest thing for me is, does this make your team better? Does it, does it allow you to take the personnel and the players that you have and also to put your team in the best position to score those one or two more points or to highlight players who are good at what they do? And again, you know, if you go back to the, uh, the, the middles and the setters trading for each or subbing for each other, you know, it, it's great if you're a setter if you only set one middle because that middle gets to work with you all the time in practice. You know, no, timing and tempo is so much better. Uh, it, it's a no-brainer. Also, the middles don't have to play back row. They don't have to serve. You know, so there's all kinds of things. You know, if you've got a Libro that's a great passer and you've got a Libro that's a great digger, you know, how do you have those two players on the court and maximize their benefit? You know, it's, it's two players having the benefit of one great Libro, but you're using two instead of one. So I, you know, again, these are these are what what if scenarios, and they're you know they're just getting you to think a little bit outside the box. But you know, it's one of the things that great coaches will do is they're not afraid to try anything. It may not work, and they may scrap it, but you're not afraid to look at anything that might give your team a chance and an edge, and also will allow your players to grow as players because you're you know you're entrusting them you know tactically to do things that maybe they've never done before. But now you start to educate them as well because what this does is it, you know, you're, you show them that you're trying to do everything possible to give your team the best chance to be successful. So I hope you like this podcast. And I know a lot of you guys are getting ready for your high school season. And, you know, a lot of your club coaches are starting to gear up and think about your lineups and your personnel and your players for the, for the coming club season. So uh, I want to wish everybody the best. Hope your summer's going well. And I want to wish everybody a great August. And uh, um, take care. <laughs>